Well, this morning we are in Acts chapter 18, and I'm going to ask Lisa Abraham to come and read God's Word for us. And as Lisa comes forward, you'll find Acts 18 in your pew Bibles on page 1114. Thanks, Lisa. So Acts chapter 18, verses 1 to 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome, Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. While Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him into court. This man they charged is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Galileo said to the Jews, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he had them ejected from the court. Then they all turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the court. But Leo showed no concern, whatever. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Sincrea because of a vow he had taken. And as we, as we edge our way in this morning, I wonder what you've been thinking about the book of Acts. As we have studied it over the last few weeks, what are some of the thoughts that you've been having? I wonder if you've been watching it a little bit like a movie. It is very dramatic, isn't it? It's wonderful to be able to trace what's happening in the early church. We often refer to Acts and, and how the early church is developing. Last week, we're in Athens. This week, we're in Corinth. It's, it's fast-moving. There's lots of things happening. Uh, but here's one of the, the things that I fear that's going on in our hearts. We, we look at Acts, and we think, that's great. <laughs> that's that's wonderful. Paul led all of these people to the Lord. Every time he seemed to preach, people are converted. That's really good for Paul. That's amazing how the Holy Spirit worked back then. And we keep it at a distance. We hold the text out here. This, this is great for them and for that time, but for us, well, no real relevance. And to think like that means we have missed the challenge. We've missed the principle at play. And the principle at play is the, 
the great, the great dynamic nature of the gospel. That as the gospel comes to people for the first time, as they hear the good news of Jesus Christ, what happens? People are transformed, lives are transformed, and then villages and towns and communities and cities are transformed. And the call that we're going to see today is that we have to speak about Jesus. It's a very, very simple message this morning, but it's one that we forget. And we have to speak about Christ if we are Christians. For many years in this country, and we have mentioned this before, for many years we reduced the gospel, we shrunk the gospel down to get a time and get a date. And then we took our time and our date as if we wrote it on a, on a little piece of paper or a little bookmark, and we folded it up and we tucked it inside our Bible, and we never opened our Bible again, or we put it into the coat pocket that we have, and we thought, that's me sorted now. Friends, what we've said is that is not, that is not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity hears about Jesus as a person. We hear about Him, and it changes us from the inside out, slowly but surely it changes us. So here's a quote for us, and it's a quote that we're familiar with. The only, necessary, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. There are various sources that this has been attributed to, and so I didn't put any down, so you can take your pick. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. How does that start? Maybe you're going to school and you and your friend go into uh, the shop and there's penny chews and your friend decides to lift one out of the, the little pick-a-mix and throw it into his mouth or her mouth and, and never let on to the cashier. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men, good women to say nothing, to do nothing. Maybe it's the friend who is copying your work if you're in university or if you're in class, copying your work. You're not mentioning it. You're saying nothing. Maybe as we get a little bit older, it's the person at work that we know is claiming a certain amount of hours on the worksheet, and yet they're not doing anywhere near that. Maybe it's the person who, who fills in their tax form and fills it in incorrectly. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men, for good women to do nothing, not to speak, and that's maybe a low-level way of thinking about it, but what about our society? We watch our television screens this week. We hear the reports of all that's going on in the news. What do we see? A decline in society. We see a, a moral erosion of good laws, a free fall into sexual immorality. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men, for good women to do nothing. What then shall we do? What, what, is, what is the tactic? How do, we, how do we turn the tide on this? How do we try to reclaim our society? How do we try to reclaim all that has happened, all the things that have been lost as we decline and slide into the place that we're heading? What do we do this morning? Do we, do we just sit here and say that the culture has gotten too strong for us now? That the tide has turned, the battle is lost, we'll sit tight, we'll shut our eyes, we'll say nothing, hope that it all goes away, hope that the Lord calls us home before it gets any worse, hope that He returns? Well, that is our prayer. 
But what do we do between now and then? Well, we're going to see some very simple things in Acts chapter 18. Let's chart this. Let's try and fill in the background before we take our next step forward. Last week, we were in Athens, okay? And in Athens, Paul arrives, and he gets a culture shock. There are idols everywhere, false gods everywhere. This week, chapter 18, you'll see, verse 1, after this, Paul left Athens, and he went to Corinth. Now, what is Corinth? Where is Corinth? What's happening in Corinth? Here's a little map for us to see it. In Corinth, he's going to, if he got in Athens a culture shock, in Corinth, he's going to get a moral shock. Corinth is a trade hub. It has two large ports. It, it's a great place to trade because it's linked north and south, east and west. It had a great canal to help with this. So it's a, it's a fluid city. It's a cosmopolitan city. Lots of people who are far from home, lots of people who don't know one another, lots of strangers in the same place, no accountability. You can imagine what starts to happen. There are lots of problems because in this city, there's the temple of Venus. And who's Venus? Well, Venus is the goddess of love. And so this temple set up in a raised position within the city, and within the temple, there were 1,000, 1,000 female slaves that served as as prostitutes, and in the evening time, they roamed the city streets. They came down from the temple each evening. And so, you can imagine this is a place of great sexual immorality. And the history books for centuries said to be known as a Corinthian was a derogatory term. You did not want to be known as someone from Corinth. It's a melting pot. And into this melting pot of crumbling morals and all that's happening, a place where anything goes, we find Paul. After this, verse 1, Paul left Athens, and he went to Corinth. So, are there lessons here to be learned for us? Absolutely. Are there parallel lines between this culture and our, our culture? Yes, there are. Are they identical? No. But there are some principles at work that we're going to see. So, what is our answer to a crumbling society? Our answer simply this morning is, speak, speak. Show Jesus as the truth. Show Jesus as the life. Speak and do not be silent. Speak and do not be silent. Now, as we start to think about this, here's our fear. Our fear is that we think that we have to be an extraordinary Christian, that we have to turn into some sort of high-level evangelist. That is not the call this morning. The call is that we are faithful where we're at. Fiona led us in a, in a reflection this morning at our prayer time before church, and it's exactly what Fiona was saying, that we walk with the Lord. We don't have to be extraordinary in that sense. We are ordinary people. So as ordinary people living ordinary lives, we read about other people who were doing exactly the same. And what was the call from the Lord? The call was to speak and not be silent. Now, as I say that, it's still really hard for us to understand that the emphasis isn't on us. We, we, we automatically grasp it and, and push it into ourselves and think it's all about us. Now, how do we stop that? Well, Scripture stops it for us because what we see all over Acts chapter 18 is the sovereign hand of the Lord. And that's what we're going to see. We're going to see God's sovereignty, our responsibility to speak, and then God saving people. God's sovereignty our responsibility to speak, and then God's saving. 
So is God really in control of all things? Is he weaving all things together? Well, yes, he is. Look at verse 2. Paul arrives into Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul arrives into Corinth and defined these Jewish believers as like finding a needle in a haystack. And yet, what do we see? Look at verse 2. Do we pick that detail up? Priscilla and Aquila happened to be in Corinth. Why? Because Claudius, verse 2, had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. So, can you imagine it? Here's this little couple, and they're thinking that Claudius has told us we've got to get out of this city. So, they leave Rome. They pack up their bags, and they're thinking, where are we going to go? Where, where, where will we travel to? Where would be a, a place to live? And so they pack up all of their belongings, and you can imagine the conversation. Why us? Why now? What's going on? What's the Lord doing? And they arrive into this city, and then they meet this man called Paul. And then Paul's going to preach. And this city is going to start to change, and we know that it changes because there's a church established because we have First and Second Corinthians, the letters that Paul writes back to this church. So here they are, simple people, being faithful, Priscilla and Aquila, and how do they demonstrate their faithfulness through radical hospitality? Look at how Paul comes in. Verse 3, because he stayed with them as their tent maker, he lives with them. Their willingness to host him, to share their whole lives, to share their work, to share their homes, to share their heart with him. And from this house, Paul sets up his base from which to launch the gospel. Look at verse 4. He's teaching every Sabbath. He reasons in the synagogue. He's trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. God's sovereign hand over Priscilla and Aquila, bringing them into Corinth, bringing Paul into Corinth, bringing their paths across, giving Paul a home, giving Priscilla and Aquila a home. His sovereignty at work in simple people's lives as they are faithful. And Priscilla and Aquila, if you maybe come back to me this morning and said, well, John, it's only Paul that speaks as we think about this. Speak and do not be silent. It's only Paul that goes out well, look at, look at the end of the chapter with me. Look at verse 26. We cross another man. And it says that he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. And when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Isn't that amazing? That feels very modern for us in church, doesn't it? Radical hospitality, inviting someone round our house to have a cup of tea. I don't know if the 15s or caramel squares or what was the, the, the on offer here, a bowl of soup maybe. And what do they do? They start to talk about the Lord. We start to explain to this man the way of the Lord more accurately. They don't just sit back and think, this isn't for me. We'll only let Paul in, involve himself in that work. But this is, this is for us. This is what the Christian community does. And so they speak. Everything in this passage is framed around God's sovereignty and then the ability to speak. So what does this look like? As we sound Christ to souls, what does it look like for us? What does it look like for us today here in church? What does it look like for you? Well, it's slow. 
Paul's in Corinth for almost two years. It's not a, a quick raid, like a, an SAS raid into someone's life and out again. He's in this city. He's with the people of this city. He travels with them, journeys with them, talks with them day after day after day. He's persistent. He's slow. He's relational. He's getting to know people, understanding people, loving people, caring for people. And so too, it is exactly the same for us. How do we reach our friends? Do we come in with a a commando-type raid and burst into their lives and then flee again really quickly? Or do we journey with people slowly, consistently, loving them day after day, week after week, year after year, praying for them, encouraging them, showing them what it is to live like a Christian, sharing our whole lives and our whole hearts? This This is a high calling, but it's an ordinary calling. Uh, you can fill in some of the details, can't you? Verse 26, they, they go to the synagogue and then they say, well, look, come back, come back to our house with us. Maybe the ironing's not done. Maybe there's crumbs on the floor. Maybe there's not enough food in the house, but whatever they have, they stretch it and make it go round. You see the picture? It's just being ordinary people, inviting others into our lives, telling them about Jesus. Little questions that I find helpful are things like this. What, what has Jesus been teaching you? What have you been learning in church? T- starting to have that conversation. Starting to have it maybe here on a Sunday after church in the mornings or in the evenings, asking that question to one another to get used to it. It's hard to ask someone. It, it, we're nervous a little bit about asking somebody about their faith. What, what's Jesus teaching you? What has he been reminding you of? What has he challenged you in? See, a Christ-centered life. Here's what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. As he writes back to this church, what does he say? He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It's all about Jesus. Is he making tense in the first few verses? Yes, he is. But it's still all about Jesus. As he goes about his life, because at the beginning of chapter 18, he goes, we're told, every Sabbath, and then it will move on to be an every day. And so he's living his life six, seven days of the week. But what's he knowing? Jesus Christ and him crucified. Friends, we have to sound Christ to souls. If we, if we give up on this, if we say that this isn't for us today, if we say that we shouldn't sound Christ to souls, well then we might as well prepare to put the boards up on the windows, close the doors, and stop giving to the work of the church. Because if we stop sounding the good news of Jesus, not just from the pulpit, but not less than the pulpit, but not just from here, but from each one of you, well then we're done. We're finished. The work's over. We can talk about football, of course we can. We can talk about the weather, the economy, politics, the price of heating oil. But friends, please, in that all, sound Christ to souls. Take the risk. Be brave. Step out. Verse 5, what is Paul saying in chapter 18? He's telling everybody that Christ was Jesus. What does that mean? Christ 
was Jesus. Well, for the Jews, they understood that this second coming was happening at some stage, that there would be, or, or sorry, the first coming, they were waiting for the first coming of their Messiah, of the one who would be called the Christ. That's not Jesus' second name. It, it just, it's a title that they attribute to the, the coming Messiah. It means anointed one or chosen one. And so, in the Old Testament, the anointed one or the chosen one would have been the prophets and the priests and the kings. And the Jews, they're waiting. They're waiting for the Messiah to come and to deliver them. They think from a political oppression. And yet, what does Paul say? Paul says, don't worry about a political change of things. Look and see this, that Jesus comes, verse 5, that He is the Christ, and He comes to bring greater deliverance, and the greater deliverance is this. He comes to save you from your sin, to take you out of the bondage of slavery of sin, and to give you life, and to give it to you in its fullest sense. He comes to bring you into relationship, and that's Paul's message. I decided to know nothing else, resolved to know nothing else, except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Why? Because it's the only way. It's the only way that people's lives are changed. How was your life changed as a Christian? If you're a Christian here today, it wasn't changed through a gimmick. It wasn't changed through somebody trying to persuade you into some sort of fancy organization. It has been changed by Jesus Christ and the knowledge that He went to the cross at Calvary and that He was crucified and shed His blood and then extends forgiveness. And then you see our Savior rise three days later, and you know Him to be true. And that changes everything. Can this be our message? I resolve to know nothing else except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Will it be easy? No, it will not be easy. Look at verse 6. They opposed him, and they reviled him. And what does Paul do? He, he shakes out his garments. That's a strange thing. We don't, we don't do that now. We don't shake out our garments at someone. They would think we'd lost our mind if we did. Well, what's going on there? He, he shakes out his garments. That's a, a reference back to Jeremiah chapter 5 and Jeremiah 13. Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 13. Because in that, that was a sign of the judgment. To, to shake out your cloak before someone was a sign of judgment. And so they hear about Jesus Christ, they oppose Jesus Christ, they oppose His message, they revile the messenger, and so He shakes out His garments. It's a sign of judgment. And then He uses these words. See in verse 6, your blood be on your own heads. Your blood be on your own heads, for I am clear of my responsibility. What is that? Ezekiel chapter 33 Ezekiel chapter 33, the watchman of Israel, or the watchman of Israel, what was he to do? The watchman was to survey the, the scenery. And as the watchman surveyed the scenery, if he saw danger coming or, or an enemy coming, he was to sound the trumpet. And whenever the watchman would sound the trumpet, that let everybody know that danger was coming. But if the people decided to ignore that, to ignore the trumpet sound, then it was known that their blood was on their own head. The watchman had sounded the message. The people had ignored it. He was, he was clear of all responsibility, but their blood would be on their own head. Do you feel the weight of this this morning? As Christ is preached, as Jesus is extended, 
And as people oppose and revile him, as judgment is shown, as the watchman hurls or the watchwoman tells of the danger that is coming, they speak about it, they tell their friends about it. This is a very serious line in Scripture that their blood is on their own heads. And maybe you're here this morning and, and you've never believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. You've never taken this message seriously. You've heard it, but you've never taken it seriously. Friends, I, I don't preach this this morning. I, I don't do it to scare anyone. I, I do it because it's what it says. The watchman proclaims that there's danger coming. And people ignore him and their blood is on their own heads. Friends, this morning you have a very serious thing before you and it's the good news of the gospel. Forgiveness for you, if you'll come. But to reject this this morning, to reject the Savior means that your blood is on your own head instead of where? Instead of Jesus shedding his blood for us upon the cross of Calvary, he goes there for us so that we can claim his righteousness as our own to reject Him on earth is a serious thing and will have eternal consequences. And so, what does this do? As we hear the seriousness of this, for all of us as, who are Christians here this morning, it should fire us up and we should think we must not be silent. We've got to speak. We've got to tell people. And you maybe said to me, well, it's all right for Paul. He's top of the twig. He's getting all the encouragements. He's, he's, he's the man in this, in this city. He, it's no bother to him. Look at verse 9. Paul's been discouraged in the opening verses. He then goes in verses 7 and 8, and he speaks. And Crispus is converted. His entire household believe in the Lord. But look at verse 9. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. We, we read over that really quickly. Do not be afraid. What does that mean? It means that Paul must have been afraid. Paul here in verse 9 must be downcast. He must be discouraged. He must feel like he's ready to, to pack it all in. I can't do this any longer, Lord, because this is exactly what the Lord does to Abraham, isn't it? As we thought about throughout his story, he comes again. He renews the promise keep going, my faithful servant. Keep living for me. Keep walking along. Keep going. For Paul, do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. Now, this is true in Corinth, but we know that Paul's going to get himself beaten up. He's going to find himself in, in much difficulty. But for this moment, the Lord gives him a promise at this time in his life. Don't be afraid. Do not be silent. Keep on speaking, for I am with you, and there are people in this city that I want to reach with the good news of the gospel. What does it look like for us? It's, it's those options with the children. What do we do as Christians? We can either give up, we can lie down, or we can keep on going. The simple, ordinary tasks of life, reaching people, reaching friends, reaching the people that God has put into our life. For we decide to know nothing among people except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Jesse Ryle has this wonderful quote. 
and our time's nearly gone. He talks about the person that's zealous for the Lord and how we would long for this to be us. He's talking about him and he says he sees only one thing. He cares for only one thing. He lives for one thing. He is swallowed up in one thing. Whether he lives or whether he dies, whether he has health or whether he has sickness, whether he is rich or whether he is poor, whether he pleases man or gives offense, whether he is thought wise or thought foolish, whether he gets blame or gets praise, honor or shame, he burns for one thing. And that one thing is to please God and to advance God's glory. Oh, that we would raise up and just do what the Lord has called us to do and to talk to people about Jesus in our ordinary lives, in our ordinary ways, not with all of the fanciest language put together, but just sharing what the Lord's doing in us because it's the way, the truth, and the life. Do you believe the Lord is sovereign? Do you believe that He's still saving people? Do you believe that salvation belongs to the Lord? Well, look at that verse again. Verse 10, do not be afraid. Why do we do this all? This is pointless, John. Surely, surely we're just wasting our time. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many Preach the word because I have many in this city. I have many people here. What do we believe? And our time is really gone, but I want to talk about this for just a moment. We believe that the Lord predestines people to salvation. And that makes people feel really uneasy. It makes people actually think we don't need to do evangelism at all. We don't need to talk to anybody about Jesus. If God's going to save them, well, then we don't need to do anything. That's to twist this logic. What, is, what does he say? He says, please, Paul, keep on speaking because there are people here that are mine and I need you to speak so that I can draw them in. Preach the word. Tell people because I have my people who are waiting to respond to it. Go, do not be silent. Speak the word. Speak it in season and out of season. Speak it in the houses that you come into. Speak it in the halls of the university. Speak it in the office. Speak it in the schoolyard, on the bus, in the car, in the shop, in the waiting room, on Facebook, on Instagram. Speak the word. Why? Because I have people, my people in this city. Isn't that incredible for us today here in Lurgan? That God has people here people in our towns, people in our lives that He wants to save. People that have been predestined. Now, it's not up to us to work all of that out. What it's up to us to do, He says, speak. Don't be silent. Extend to them the good news. Show them something of my grace and mercy. And watch as I work. You speak, I'll save. And thank the Lord it's that way around, isn't it? Imagine if all of our words, we had responsibility on getting the right combination. If all of our evangelistic efforts were down to us, if anybody became a Christian, we would be ruined, wouldn't we? We would play everything over in our mind. We'd never sleep. The Lord simply says, speak, do not be silent. I am with you. I will be with you. And I have my people here in this city.
with this we'll close. Paul says in Romans 1 and verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew and then also to the Greek. We cannot remain silent. We must speak the word of Jesus to people. The mission is too grave the consequences are too great, and the rewards are glorious. We cannot, we cannot remain silent. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we see your wonderful sovereign hand at play in this passage. And so we thank you. We thank you that you have placed people into our lives. And so we ask the question, who is the one, Lord? Who's the one person in our life today that you have placed there? Who's the one person that this morning their name is going over and over in our minds. Who's the one person that, Holy Spirit, you're asking us to pray for? Who's the one person this week that we will love them as well as we can so to show them you? Jesus, you are wonderful. You're great. You're majestic. You forgive our sins. You give us life. Help us. Help us to speak about you. May we not remain silent. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' strong name. Amen.